Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to another exciting episode. Joining me is Susan Crawford. Susan is a law professor at Harvard Law School, focusing on climate adaptation and public leadership. Susan has a new book out, Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm. The book explores the intersection of race and climate change adaptation in Charleston's infrastructure planning, highlighting the challenges faced by marginalized communities. The racial history of Charleston plays a critical part of her book. We also discuss the city's reliance on tourism, the disparities in planning and federal funding, and the importance of community engagement. You'll get introduced to concepts like raging politeness and benevolent paternalism. This was a fascinating discussion covering controversial ground, focusing on one of the cities on the front line of climate change. What happens in Charleston will be closely watched by many other cities starting their own adaptation journeys. I hope you enjoy this riveting conversation. Okay, upcoming episodes. I'm traveling to St. Louis, Missouri to cover the U.S. Department of Defense's Climate Resilience Workshop. DOD invited me to cover the event, and I'm looking forward to sharing what that federal agency is doing in the adaptation sector. Also, I'm working with the Natural Resources Defense Council on buyout programs related to flooding. We'll hear from experts, but also residents who went through the buyout process. Let's just say for some, it was not a pleasant experience. Great stuff on the way. Okay, let's join Susan Crawford and take a journey down south to Charleston, South Carolina. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining me is Susan Crawford. Susan is the John A. Riley Clinical Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, where she teaches courses about climate adaptation and public leadership. She's written a new book, Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm. Hi, Susan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. It's great to be here. I've been spending a lot of time on your book, so I'm very excited to talk about it. But let's get some of the basics here. I've mentioned some of the things you teach at Harvard, but can you expand on that? What are you doing there at Harvard? Well, you know, you've had a couple of law professors on recently who have come at this from different directions. Mark Nevitt, with his wonderful background in the Navy, is a real planner, and Madison Condon, background as an engineer. My background is in internet infrastructure. So I came at this from a background of knowing a lot about the line between public and private planning in the United States and where that leaves populations. And at Harvard for several years, I had been teaching courses about city uses of technology and about communications infrastructure. And that got me interested when I visited Charleston in the infrastructure planning there going on for sea level rise. So long-winded way of saying I'm another law professor with a different kind of background, also very interested in apolitical planning for the future. So you'd mentioned a little bit about your background before you got to Harvard, but could you expand on that? You worked in the Obama administration. What were you doing there? I did. I was special assistant for science, technology, and innovation policy. That's a staff position of the National Economic Council. And at the time, the country was heading into an economic abyss, and I was focused on how tech policy plays or doesn't play into the choices made by the country. I don't suppose you happened to cross paths with Alice Hill when she was, I know she was in the national security, but were you crossing paths at all? I didn't cross paths with her then, but I've been crossing paths with her a lot in Washington recently, and she's just terrific. Yeah, she's been on quite a bit, so I always enjoy having her on. She has a very interesting history. So let's jump into this book. It's getting attention. And when I first came across my radar, I'm like, I get a lot of book offer. Like, you don't want to come talk to my author. And I'm just like, oh, God, no, this and if it's not directly related. But then I was poking through and I'm just like, wait a sec, this is right up my alley. Looks really interesting. And of course, you as the author who wrote it, I'm like, this could be a really 
interesting conversation. So here we are. I thought the best way to do this, because you touch upon race and climate change, the two non-controversial subjects. But first off, let's just ground people in the basics, even though I think we all assume people know what Charleston is. Can you just give us a little bit of background about Charleston? Obviously, don't go into too much detail, but I want to give people kind of a flavor. What is the city? Well, the, the Charleston that tourists visit is largely the historic peninsula that was settled in the late 17th century and built 60% of it over Phil. Over the last few decades, Charleston also sprawled, expanded its suburbs over marshy areas to the east and west of that historic peninsula. Today, it's a metro area of about 800,000 people, many of whom live at 10 feet above sea level or less. And there's very little ground in the Charleston metro that is 20 feet or higher above sea level. So it's very, very low. And much of the residential area was built over fill. Yeah, that was really interesting part about the book when you're really describing that early history. I mean, just this landfill is a, <laughs> a lot of what Charleston is. And I think it's an issue. There's even issues of smells even to this day, right? Because he's just been filling in things for a long time. Look, it was madness to have a city there in the first place. And the people who funded that first expedition begged the explorers to move 30 miles inland to a safer place. But they were just determined to live right on the ocean. This is the same story for New York City and for Boston. Probably wiser people would have built inland in the first place. But as it is, these places are profoundly threatened by sea level rise. We got a little bit of the, the history of Charleston. Now let's talk a, a bit about rising sea levels, ground us in some of the fundamentals there, and then just about flooding in general. It's dealing with a lot of flooding now, and obviously they're worried about a lot more flooding in the future. I think there's just flooding issues, even if there wasn't sea level rise projected or happening. It's just an area that gets flooded a lot, right? It's an all-hazard area. The groundwater's really shallow, just a few feet below the surface, so that's rising. When they get rainstorms, because there's been so much development, the water just sits around and doesn't have a place to go. They're always threatened by hurricanes. This past weekend, every day, saw high tide flooding on the peninsula. And in 2019, they had 89 days of high tide flooding that affected traffic and moving around the city of Charleston. So they're constantly seeing the effects of just daily flooding in the city. And they're facing a lot more as the decades roll by. And it was interesting how you described the city. I've been, you know, I was trying to think, I've obviously been to Charleston before. I don't know if I've been twice. Lovely city. But I mean, you make a point in the book. It's like, I'm exhibit A of this, why Charleston's popular. There's these tourists are coming from out of town. They want to eat in those fancy restaurants and go through the historic areas. Can you tell us a little bit more about maybe the economy there? I mean, is it primarily tourism? I'd say the Charleston economy is based on tourism and real estate. So about 7 million tourists visit every year. People come for those wonderful restaurants and many come also to go out to the barrier islands and see the swamp grass and the water sweeping in. It's a lovely place. Over the last 40 years, that entire tourist economy was developed quite intentionally by former Mayor Riley, who brought in cultural events and lots of restaurants and made it a mecca, particularly for white tourists to visit. So its economy is heavily based on sort of pleasure, I would say. And many people have moved there from the Northeast and other regions, seeking that gentle quality of life that they perceive from the tourist advertisements. I'm sold. When I went there, I had a great time, and it, it's, but I'm not sitting there knowing the history, and it was really interesting. All right, let's pivot a little bit here. Let's talk about the history of slavery, and then we're going to really talk about, dig into the issues of race in Charleston. But uh, Charleston had a unique role in the slave trade, right? Sure. 
alone among the English-founded colonies in the United States. Enslaved people were part of the population of Charleston from the beginning. And there are many periods in Charleston's history where there were more enslaved people and also freed Black people living there than white people by far. It was the place where at least 40% of the enslaved people brought forcibly to America first step shore. And it was a center of the domestic slave trade after slavery was outlawed. Uh, The transatlantic slave trade was outlawed in 1808. It has the hidden pain of a tourist area. You can't see the vestiges of slavery while you're there. But if you know anything about the history of this country, the fact that Charleston was the place where the first state seceded from the Union and launched the Civil War, it was the place where hundreds of thousands of slaves were brought through into this country and its entire economy dependent on large plantations where that were built on the backs of enslaved people for a, most of its history. Today, it is this has this sort of ahistorical amnesiac quality. It's a place of Southern hospitality. I think that's the way white people perceive it. And although there are still Black residents of Charleston, They've been largely priced off the peninsula, which about 40 or 50 years ago was 75 or 80 percent black and is now mostly white. That I thought was a really interesting part of the book when you're talking about the race, that there's this nuance that even people in Charleston, like I'm going to go between African-American and and black. and I'm going to try to be consistent, but that. There's this genteel nature that even the people of Charleston, you, this was describing, I'm describing the book. I obviously don't have my own experience that we're going to handle things as sort of this family and we're not going to look back on these really negative things and it's not going to influence and there won't be this overreaction. And I guess, please describe if I'm getting that completely wrong, but it, that plays into how everyone's going to respond to climate change, right? I was fortunate in working on this book to be afforded a lot of time with Black residents of Charleston who were very generous with their time and talked to me about what it's like to be a Black resident of Charleston. Reverend Darby is a main character in this book, and he says that Charleston is a place of raging politeness, that there's a benevolent, benevolent, paternalistic sort of we know what's best for you people attitude of the local government there. I perceive it as an outsider, as a kind of blindness and some amount of complacency on the part of uh, leading white citizens who just believe that they have a peaceful, forgiving society in which they're living. But if you spend a lot of time talking to Black residents, they will say in their own voices that they experience racism or second-class treatment all the time living there, that it feels very strange to live there as a Black resident. That plays out when we're talking about responding to, adapting to climate change, as it does in cities around the world. Because of historic patterns that have excluded poor areas, areas with marginalized populations from investment in flood protection, and often excluded them from property ownership in many ways, the effects of the ravages of climate change will be felt disproportionately by marginalized populations, people of color, lower income people. And that's true in Charleston as it is around the globe. My own history, uh, you know, I'm from Florida, which a lot of people don't even consider the real South, but I lived in Georgia for five years and this raging politeness I, I appreciate <laughs> because I had friends, you know, I, at the time I'd get, went to church, not a church goer now, but people would say with a straight face, like Southerners, they're white Southerners, 
the war of northern aggression. And, and of course, there was a tongue in cheek and half, but like they, there's still this kind of semi resentment about North. And I get it. Like, and I, when I was reading your book, I'm like a bit of seething on my part because it's just this notion of, oh, well, we're just going to handle this politely. And you go through a lot of history where the, the white community fought tooth and nail against even little, like taking away the statue of Calhoun. You, you get, you talk about that here, which was fascinating. I mean, that should have been a no brainer. And they fought that until like the bitter end. And that, yeah, I, I, you can kind of see through that. People do things for good reasons. And often statues are kept in place because the people in power believe that they don't have the legal authority to move them or that they're more representations of legacy and history. But if you're a Black resident of Charleston looking up at that spooky former statue of Calhoun, you saw a threat, an implied threat, really you know, the totemic representation of white supremacy. It turned out in the end that the city of Charleston did have the legal authority to take down that statue, and it came down in June 2020. The current mayor, Mayor Tecklenburg, feels very warmly towards the Black residents of Charleston, cares about them a great deal, and often visits Black churches and pays attention. Nonetheless, there is ongoing a feeling among the Black residents of that city that they will always be left out of consultations and in the end will be treated badly by whatever decisions get made. And we're going to get to that. I want to get back to that, but I guess still get a bit more of this background. And you talked about it a little bit. What motivated you to write this book? And so we have race and we have climate change. Really, what were some of those key moments where you're like, okay, you're just writing a book's a big deal? I got into this book because I came down to Charleston to interview former Mayor Riley. He'd been America's favorite mayor. He'd stepped down from office after 40 years. And I was there actually to talk about internet access infrastructure, ask him about fiber. I got a tip from a local journalist that it would be interesting to ask him about another kind of infrastructure, and that's water. I said, water? Okay, I'll ask him. And I asked Mayor Riley about the water, and he sort of clammed up. He said, it'll be very expensive. That's about all he said to me about it. And it seemed to me that there was a story here, some quest. I wasn't sure what it was. The city was embarking soon after that on a series of meetings with Dutch landscape architects, the Dutch dialogues. And I got very interested in that. And I was lucky enough to be in on those meetings during the summer of 2019. I had really exclusive access to a lot of the people who were coming from the Netherlands to talk to Charleston. They were the very highest quality landscape architects. And I began reporting on the story as one of real local government triumph. I thought that the city of Charleston was going to be able to act on the recommendations coming out from those landscape architects and make transformative changes to their city that would anticipate the future and protect residents. As the reporting went on, I got interested in the racial questions that were mm. being brought to my attention. And I noticed in the September 2019 meeting held to announce the results of the Dutch dialogues that there were very few Black people in attendance. And I just was curious about that. So I started asking around. I guess, Doug, what I'm telling you is that this has been quite a journey for me. It started at place A and ended up at place D. And I don't wish to condemn the city of Charleston. I think that they are doing the best they can given the complete misfit of programs and funding and everything else that you so amply discuss on this podcast in trying to address sea level rise. But nonetheless, they have a long way to go, as does the rest of the East Coast. 
in facing the phase change that's really coming in the next few decades. Okay, we're going to talk a bit more about what the adequate planning or not adequate planning of Charleston. And, and I guess just a little bit of a shout out to Charleston. When I was reading your book and just even these Dutch dialogues, I, I did a lot of adaptation planning in the state of Florida and we were doing some of the first of its kind. And, you know, Miami's been doing stuff for a while, but it like, this is South Carolina. This is a Southern state. And the fact that they even had Dutch dialogues, I'm like, even if they're dealing with the recommendation, mm-hmm. there's states where they're not even allowed to talk about it. It was fascinating to see that Charleston had done and engaged that much. And, you know, they they do. I mentioned, we talked earlier about Dale Morris, chief resilience officer. I mean, there should be a chief resilience officer in every coastal town in the Southeast. And that's certainly not the case. And so just, a, I guess, a shout out in the sense that they were setting the pieces in place. But I guess mm-hmm. when it comes looking under the hood, what's going on there, there's a lot more to be done. And I guess that's how I want to pivot with you now. It's just, can you tell us a bit about some of the adaptation planning that they're doing based on what your own research into it is like what so people can visualize when people think adaptation plan they don't necessarily know what that means well let's start with the very positive moves that charleston's taking they have outlawed building on fill which is a big step you know when you build on dirt that you've trucked in the neighbors of your development will be flooded so they've said that can't happen any longer they are working towards planning elevation-based zoning, changing the nature of new developments that can be built on the very lowest land in Charleston. They haven't yet adopted that set of zoning regulations, but they're moving that way. And that's more than many other cities have done in America. Nonetheless, they're placing a lot of faith in a plan that they're working on with the Army Corps of Engineers on a wall to be built around the Charleston Peninsula, which would protect the highest value assets in the city, the hospital district, the College of Charleston, other valuable pieces of property that are on that historic peninsula, not to mention the tourist economy that depends on it. And that wall like the wall that was rejected by Miami a couple of years ago, is planned to a pretty low level of survival and also won't protect 90% of the citizens of Charleston, really only for that small peninsula, and won't do much to guard against high tide flooding or the groundwater rising or the rain pooling or all the other things that Charleston faces. It's designed to deal with storm surge for the catastrophic effects caused by hurricanes. It's built to a level, There's the Army Corps is assuming 14 to 18 feet of sea level rise over the next few decades, 14 to 18 inches, I'm sorry, sea level rise over the next few decades. And so the city of Charleston has the same assumption in its planning for the wall. The problem with that is that it's likely that the wall will be overtopped by storms within a matter of decades. It certainly won't you know, last 100 years. And there's a real risk that it represents a form of maladaptation. That is, it'll create a kind of moral hazard that people will feel more comfortable on the peninsula when that wall is built. And so we'll continue developing and we'll sort of build back up to the level of risk that would have existed absent the wall's creation. So I focus a good deal in the book on the planning for the wall. Charleston's also doubling down on development planned on the peninsula. Tonight, there's a meeting about the Union Pier development, which would be built on the east side of the peninsula and would have 1,200 condos and 600 new hotel rooms and half a million square feet of commercial space. All of this in an area that in the 18th century was squarely in the Cooper River. Hmm. So uh, lots of things going on in Charleston. 
And you have a lot of great maps and old, old like sketches of the the city. It's really good in the book, and it helps you visualize. But I, I, mm-hmm. I couldn't quite visualize the wall, and I know Miami famously was going to do it. How high is it? I'm trying to think, like, is it like 50 feet offshore? Is it 10 feet? And it would be just an, a, an aesthetic disaster, right? I mean, just the people would be like, okay, it's protecting us, but we're looking at a wall. Why are we even living in Charles? I mean, I, how does it work that way? I'm, I'm trying to visualize it. Well, a few points on that. Uh, the city is saying that they will work with the Army Corps to make it an aesthetically pleasing wall, as currently planned and in order to pencil out in terms of this cost-benefit analysis. The wall would be built directly on land on the peninsula, walling it in. It would be eight feet tall and mostly made of concrete. It would have a lot of gates that would have to be opened and closed to permit traffic to come in. And those gates would, of course, have to be maintained by the city forever, which is enormously expensive. But the city is saying, look, just work with us. We're going to try to make sure that the wall looks nice. It's hard to tell what the wall's ultimate appearance will be. As planned, it's just a concrete wall, eight feet tall. Okay, that, that's great. That's very, <laughs> sounds ugly, but it just helped. I was thinking like 50 feet out in the water, they're building a wall or something like no, that. No. One of the points you make too, and again, I had to um, keep rereading and I w- wasn't quite understanding it. And to, you know, again, to Charleston's credit that there are all these big projects and they're like, well, the responsible thing would be to do X, but it's going to cost a ton of money. So the feds need to be a partner. So even if they're paying a percentage, 20, 30, 40%, it's still too much money based on the size of the city and the budget that they have. But there's this notion that if a hurricane hits the city, then they get access to a lot more money to maybe do some of these projects that they'd like to do, but they currently can't afford. Did I get that right? That's about right. Look, we have more than 30 agencies at the federal level focused on disaster relief to some extent, and very, very little money coming in for planning ahead of time. Something like just 12% of FEMA funds are spent on preventative measures. The city of Charleston is doing the best it can to attract federal money in the form of this Army Corps project and is assuming at some points in its planning, it's actually said that it's likely that the money will come in after a disaster to build the wall. Because we do it that way in the United States. We often have these off-budget appropriations that are made in the wake of a disaster. Look, my big point in this book is that we need a dedicated federal agency, a dedicated source of funding, actual plan that looks forward decades into the future and sets priorities at the federal level for how we're going to spend money rather than constantly reacting to disasters. Mark Nevitt's fundamental point is that the legal structures don't fit, and he's right. Madison Condon's point is that the data we're relying on might not always be reliable. My point is that absent federal leadership, every city will be left on its own the way Charleston is at this point, just doing its best to cobble together a plan in the face of really uncanny threat coming in a matter of decades, not centuries. You had the opportunity to talk to some of the black communities there in Charleston. And I'm curious that how are some of them doing? I mean, not every neighborhood's the same. And adaptation plan, you might have a neighborhood that's game to do more, but they're not necessarily doing it because they don't have funding. How did that work? Is there a particular area that they're like, wow, they're on this, they're doing it? Or is it just they're mobilizing the people better? Can you give us some examples? 
From what I could tell, the civil society infrastructure for Black residents of Charleston is relatively thin. The NAACP is active there. There's a group trying to organize the people who live in public housing, the Gadsden Green housing residents, but there is very little pushback against or in connection with the Charleston city's planning. The city attempts outreach to its Black residents but that outreach is pretty thin itself. When in talking to the people I connected with in, con- in connection with this book, several of whom are real leaders in the city of Charleston, their sense was that there isn't a substantial middle class in Charleston in the, among the Black residents that is gathering together and agitating for change X or Y, that there's more a sense that not enough is happening and that in the end, the Black residents will get the short end of the stick. And on the flip side, let's say some of these wealthier white neighborhoods, I find that, okay, okay, low-income neighborhoods, they're not really getting exposed. They're not necessarily doing a lot for a lot of good reason. The other wealthier neighbors aren't necessarily, they're not aware. Do you feel like in Charleston, they're unique? Because a lot of times with adaptation planning, it's still in the realm of in-the-know planners and government officials, and it's not this groundswell of support, even from the wealthier neighborhoods. Are they organized? Are these wealthier areas organized? Are they just kind of going along with what the city's saying? There's quite a lot of organization right now in connection with this union peer development plan. The city's already received hundreds of comments when usually they, they get a dozen or so about the plan to do this massive development on the east side of the peninsula. The residents of the barrier islands are quite aware of the risks they face. There are a lot of preservationists who are interested in what can happen to the grand old houses on the battery. So I'd I'd say the wealthier residents of Charleston are pretty well organized and interested about uh, adaptation planning. The risks, I think, are known and yet At the same time, and I know, Doug, this is hard to understand, there's a certain amount of complacency. You know, Charleston has always flooded. (laughs) That's what life is like there. So people are sort of used to it. What I'm trying to point out in the book is that it would make sense to look decades ahead and to be planning as a region for strategic relocation of uh, people on a community-wide basis to high, dry, connected places, dozens of miles inland from this place. Charleston itself is a really a concentration of risk where it is right now. This is a struggle, for, I think, for a lot of coastal areas that, and I think you mentioned this in the book, is that a lot of the people, the owners of the homes, they might not even be residents of Charleston. They might just come in for a little bit of the year or they're renting it out for Airbnb. And when you have people that, not to say that they don't care, but they have less interest in sort of long-term management of the area, and Florida is notorious for that. I mean, is that a p- component of the people there? Oh, definitely. I have had many long-term Charlestonians tell me that the people living on the peninsula now in those big houses on the Battery are not from Charleston. They're largely Northeastern residents who they are very infrequently. There's not much sense of community down in those beautiful houses. There aren't kids running around in the streets the way there would have been 50 years ago. There are a lot of non-resident second home owners there. That said, in those suburbs outside Charleston, There are a lot of regular people whose entire wealth is in their homes, and they stand to lose a lot as the waters rise as well. So it's a complex story. It's not black and white. It's not all dictated by race. A lot of it is dictated by uh, means. What is likely to happen in Charleston will be an example of the Matthew principle in action. 
sort of the rich get richer and the poor are left behind. Unless something quite dramatic and transformative happens at the national level, we will see a lot of relocation from Charleston and areas like it up and down the East Coast, but it will be haphazard, ad hoc, unplanned, and wealthier people will be very safe and go off to other houses. And people whose entire wealth is in their homes or who have no particular means will be stuck and will be miserable. All over the world, incredible people are working along the front lines of the future to build clean energy and ethical AI, to fight the climate crisis and COVID, to discover new antibiotics, to eliminate poverty, food waste, and cancer. And you can help. Important Not Important is the critically acclaimed indie podcast from me, Quint Emmett. It's science for people who give a Join me every week in conversation with one of these extraordinary diverse people engineering a brighter future. Listen to Important Not Important wherever you get your podcasts. All right. I think I already know the answer to this, but you'd mentioned there's some outreach to the the black communities, but Mm -hmm. is there any sense of like an all hands on deck community? And you hear me say this on the podcast, like a really strategic communication plan around adaptation. Do you feel the city of Charleston's all right, folks prepare, you know, and Miami has, they put those poles in the water and say, this is what five feet of sea level and just not at public meetings, but all hands on deck. This is what's happening. Is there anything like that going on? Well, certainly uh, the mayor will talk about water all the time, and okay. it is at the very top of the list of, this, of the city's priorities. And it is the number one threat, the city will say. At the same time, they don't necessarily want tourists to be spooked by sure. talking about, you know, catastrophizing would not be popular in Charleston at the local government level. As it, you know, it's not popular for any mayor up and down the coast to talk about to put all the risks on the table that are facing that locality. Like all cities in America, they depend on property tax to keep their city rolling. And they need to keep growing in order to keep paying for police services and everything else the city provides. So they're stuck in that spiral that Jesse Keenan described so eloquently that they need to choose growth over putting all the risks on the table. So this is where it gets complex. Did you, you mentioned that the area's probably going to be most impacted are these, you know, black communities. And you even talk to some people here and let's just say the city does the right thing across the board. Here's all the funding you could possibly need. Here's outreach and awareness. That doesn't mean people are going to move out of harm's way. And I think you use this example of the queen and I'm blanking on her name of the Gullah Geechee community. And if people aren't familiar, it's just African-American historic They've lived in the coast of Georgia, coast of South Carolina. She had an interesting quote of just, they've been lied to and convinced to leave their land for a variety of reasons. And all of a sudden, developers will come in and take advantage of it. So there's a lot of skepticism saying, okay, even the notion of like managed retreat, which I want to get into more a little bit later, but she was basically implying, no, we're not going to move. Is that an accurate description of what she was kind of saying? Yeah, she said, unless you tell me that the people on Hilton Head and the people on Kiowa are moving, we're not going anywhere. Because, look, we have a horrible history as a country when it comes to relocating populations. We're awful at it. And often it's done in order to move in some wealthier population to allow for increased development. That happened after Sandy. Land was cleared and then made available for rebuilding by what ended up being much richer populations. What I'm calling for in this book is a much 
more thoughtful, holistic, forward-looking set of planning arrangements coming from the federal level that encourages long conversations with communities about voluntary community-wide relocation efforts. This is not easy. It's just the a better solution than the worst, which is completely haphazard, Mad Max-like relocation, where everybody's in it for themselves. We have two big myths about climate in America. One is that it's all changing someday in the future, but not right now. And the other is that it's all a matter of your individual responsibility. And neither one of those myths is true. Things are actually changing rapidly now. And we shouldn't leave it to individuals to try to assess whether the risk is worth it or not to stay. Rather, we should help them through wraparound services, make a voluntary decision to leave because we support, pay for, encourage, help whole communities to retain their culture and then decommission the land that's left behind. One way of doing this would be to create a series of land trusts for property owners. You donate your land to the trust, you get a break from property tax, you can live there for your lifetime. In exchange, the land trust will decommission the infrastructure left behind as the waters rise. All of this is difficult and it will require a lot more planning capacity than we seem to have right now. Yes. My initial reaction to this, that is like, again, I agree. I hope that happens. I also, my personal view is it's a fantasy at the moment. It's, and not, not saying you're, but it's just, I, I think of how our own history of doing these kind of things. And, and I think there's this tension to it. Let's say you're talking to a community that you want them to move and you're talking about doing it in a very thoughtful way, but there's this other driving thing too, is that okay, we want you to move. We want you to go places where there's jobs and everything. But there's also this reality that you're, you're, you're putting yourselves in danger if you stay here. Mm-hmm. And those are two potentially diff- different motivators for someone who's trying, let's say the federal government that wants to help. It's like we're trying to force evacuation from a hurricane zone. You see what I'm getting at, though? It's just this notion of, okay, we can in a very thoughtful way try to get ahead of this. But at the same time, there's this dire situation coming your way if you don't move. That in itself has its own motivations. Look, very few countries are even able to talk about this. Right now, the Netherlands has retreat as one of its four modes of recovering from sea level rise. They're the only country I'm aware of that has a plan for two meters of sea level rise by the end of the century that does involve relocation if necessary. It's a very delicate subject, but they know that it takes decades to plan. So it would have been better to start planning a while ago, but the second best time is now. And I think that if we have clear communication about the risks facing these areas and a clear way of saying, you're not alone, we are all going to face this together, we are capable of carrying out this kind of planning initiative. It will probably take a series of disasters up and down the coast, uh, separated by very little time, or the bankruptcy of a few coastal cities to force this planning into reality. But my hope is that we'll get there sooner rather than later. I lost track because there's just so much coverage there. But with the 
you know, the housing market in Charleston, which is still mm-hmm. just ridiculous. A lot of these black communities have been priced out of historic neighborhoods. Where are they going? Are they going actually to higher ground? Is it a net positive in that respect? Not that I'm encouraging that approach, but where do they go? Well, there's been a tremendous amount of relocation displacement of Black residents of Charleston to the adjacent city of North Charleston, which is on higher ground. It also has the highest rate of eviction in the nation, we learned not too long ago. It, North Charleston right now is beginning to experience explosive gentrification as more people are moving in to that area because it is on higher ground and is relatively close to the city of Charleston. So their black residents are being displaced further and further afield. I suppose you could say that it, that's better for their health, uh, welfare, well-being. But it means that residents become farther and farther away from jobs, commute farther, have lower standards of living where they end up. And I guess the message of the book is that what hasn't happened through gentrification is likely to happen through climate change. And wouldn't it be better if there was a good deal more thoughtfulness about how these processes roll out. It's a cynical thought I'm having, just this notion of like, well, we're getting these people out of harm's way by pricing them (laughs) out of harm's way. Oh, that's just cynical, but that's actually what's happening in Charleston. And I'm sure it's happening, you know, Jesse Keenan's work in Miami, some of the things that are, you know, are going on in that area. Oh, that's just so cynical and just lack of planning right now that I think it's going to be this passive adaptation that happens in a lot of coastal areas. Oh, Doug, don't be so cynical. (laughs) That's terrible. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, as Jesse Keenan points out, that left to its own devices, the private market is adapting, in a sense, for us. They're building in luxury areas, inland. They know, they see the data, they see the risks. And we should have a sense of either moral horror or economic wastefulness of that kind of adaptation planning going forward. This is a place where the public sector should have the leading role, should be thinking ahead about how to help people lead thriving, healthy lives away from places of enormous risk. We're not doing that planning at the moment. And that is mostly because of a failure of leadership. And also because, as you've documented, we have such trust in private property as the dominant mode of thinking about what our democracy is. So you'd mentioned buyouts, which are like a tactic or what, what, I mean, you think of managed retreat, if people aren't familiar with managed retreat, I've covered it before, but I need to cover it again. And there's a big conference coming up in New York. I think you're going to be speaking and I think you're going to read from your book. I am. It's really an amazing thing. Sometimes I think that it's too academic just because we want people thinking about it, but it's just like that stuff needs to get out into the practitioner's hands. But this notion of buyouts, and I think that's a big part of what you talk about in, in the book. And I think the city of Charleston would say, even if you have a successful program, the idea of buying out even just a small population is just too expensive. What would you say to that? Like, that's, you know, you've seen some of those examples from Louisiana. It's like a million dollars, a family or something. It's just something ridiculous to move a small population. How does a city even think about that? Even if they want to do the right thing, here's the perfectly designed buyout program that's part of your strategic managed retreat, and they have no chance to even come close to funding it. You know, you're right. I don't think cities should have to do this by themselves. This is why I'm so interested in federal leadership and federal funding. And right now, our processes are unbelievably, miserably, painfully slow. It takes five to eight years. A lot of people give up because they can't wait for the buyout and they just sell the property and then it gets rebuilt again, which is a, you know, a disaster in all, all kinds of ways. So we need to scale up 
programs make them much better funded, make them much easier to access and have them on a community-wide basis rather than a matter of individual properties, and then have a plan for what happens to the land that's left behind. I agree. I don't think cities should have to be leading in this area. and We need much more federal leadership. Again, in one of these, I agree, but as you think of being in a city's position, it's like, okay, I'm going to spend $100,000 per family, and I'm just throwing that number out, to move someone off of my tax rolls. Gosh, that must be just painful for them to contemplate, you know, in an effective program. So really the only solution is, all right, here are some big pots of money from the federal government to like, let's say there's a, they're still going to be accessing tax revenue. We'll give you, if you move a family, we're still going to give you five to 10 years of like the sort of diminishing tax. There's creative ways Mm -hmm. that economists Mm -hmm. can kind of get around this. It's just, again, the sort of thoughtfulness that isn't happening. Exactly. Every system is perversely pointing in the wrong direction. We incentivize people to live by the coast. We rely on property tax to fund city services. But we have all kinds of strange programs that don't fit together and put a city in a very awkward position of having to double down on growth just to keep its operations going. And at the same time, it would make much more sense not to have people continuing to live in floodplains that we know are becoming increasingly risky. Uh, The science is very strong and getting stronger. And we should spend money on things that we care about rather than maladaptation in the form of billions and billions of dollars armoring small portions of the coast while leaving everybody else behind. You know, my brief conversation with Dale Morris, Chief Resilience Officer in Charleston, I think, like I'd mentioned earlier, I'm very impressed with a lot of the things that Charleston has done. Are they doing all the responsible things uh, in regards to like, okay, we're looking at these data sets from NOAA about sea level rise. They're trying to be as thoughtful as they can with water. Like you mentioned that development ordinance, hopefully that's going to be finalized. And these are all steps that you can take. But the thing that I really just briefly mentioned to him is if the city was being really responsible, they wouldn't be encouraged encouraging additional growth, right? It would be like, okay, we're going to take care of the people of Charleston today, and we're going to do all these things, and we expect them to live here for the next 200 years. At the same time, they are doing everything they can to encourage growth. And so I, I would argue, and I think I was trying to make the point to Dale, this, they're being very irresponsible. I mean, who doesn't want to encourage growth? I get it. But it's hard to give you much credit when you're just, okay, we, we have people that are in a danger zone, and now we're just waving the flag saying, all right, we want more of you here. And we're, we're not quite sure how we're going to manage for you too. Look, I chose Charleston because it has been a magnet for growth. It's been one of the quickest growing areas of the United States. And it is so attractive, those millions of visitors. So it's a good vessel for telling the story. But, you know, we don't need to single Charleston out. Every city is developing, is continuing to grow yes. in the face of phase change in climate risk, which is coming. Noah says that flooding is going to be five to 10 times greater beginning in 2050 up and down the East Coast. Noah says that by 2070, there will be three feet of sea level rise. EPA says by 2070, we'll see more than that. And EPA says six, more than six feet by the end of the century. FEMA uses these very high levels of sea level rise in its own planning for communities. Charleston just happens to have seized on a particular parameter for the wall, which is 2050 and 14 to 18 inches, which is indeed a NOAA number. But what I'm trying to point out is that It has no particular incentive to look further out into the future, and nobody up and down the coast is doing that. And we're 
sort of lulling citizens into a sense that somebody's doing something. There seems to be some talk about, you know, adaptation. And so as a result, we don't need to have any longer frame worries about whether it'll make sense to live where we do on the East Coast of the United States. And I'm saying that it is time to begin the many decades long planning process that will be required because of what we know is coming to help people live in different places in the United States. Yeah, I try to make a point too. In Florida, I mean, you see building cranes in Miami to this day. And quite honestly, I, I'm from Florida. I don't know where they're building. I thought that whole area was built <laughs> out. But to me, the responsible thing would be for the mayor to say, stop moving to Miami. If you live here, we'll take care of you, but we don't need anybody else. And I know that's not going to be a popular tagline for a city, but that to me is like, if someone's saying they're doing responsible adaptation planning, the idea, well, we're building in for 40% population, that that doesn't seem, because everyone's sort of complaining about the uncertainty with models, about projections. Well, then maybe they need to build in a bit more responsibly. They think they can just compensate for all this additional growth and population too, which, yeah, they can't have it both ways. So, Yeah. And it's, again, it's not their fault because they have to rely on property tax. No, no, they no. are stuck with this way of acting. And so it's not just Charleston, it's everybody. We need to rethink how we fund cities. And if it's always reliant on growth, we will get exactly this kind of emphasis on development. Just because we can build in floodplains doesn't mean we should. And those Dutch landscape and architects who came in 2019, they were horrified that America allows people to build in already existing floodplains, not even going on to mention the risks that are coming as the seas rise. Yeah, reading your book about race in Charleston and just like certainly a lot of bad behavior by the white population there for the longest time. And there's going to be these coastal communities all over the place and the notion of managed retreat at scale. If we're going to get there, we talk about, oh, we'll never get, of course we're going to get there because the oceans are rising. That's just, it's going to force it upon us in a very thoughtful way or unthoughtful way. And yet, we're not going to be able to help every community. And then the notion of which communities do we help? And you just reading your book about Charleston, it just got me philosophical about, all right, if I had to pick and choose what cities to help, even though I love Charleston, I think it's a beautiful city. It's just like, all right, does your history weigh into it? Does your efforts at planning weigh into it? And again, they're way ahead of so many other coastal cities. But I think we're going to have a lot of those uncomfortable conversations where, okay, we don't have a $10 trillion check to help every single city in the United States along the coast to have a managed retreat. The challenge for the adaptation community is to somehow talk about this subject in a way that isn't preachy, isn't catastrophizing, much more the way that Mark Nevitt talks about it, that these are risks. They're known risks. We can't allow our people to live in such risky situations because it's unsafe for everybody and cities have to maintain infrastructure at enormous expense to keep communities going rather than thinking long-term about where they should be relocating to. You know, I understand that it's unthinkable, uncanny to imagine a different kind of planning framework. But I also think ultimately, if there isn't political government intervention, we end up with just an ad hoc, unprincipled, everyone out for themselves future for the country, which can't be the right idea. 
So I want to pivot to the final part of this conversation we're going to have and just to wrap up what we're talking about with the book. Obviously, you had goals when you wrote this book. If people had a takeaway or if they're interested in reading this book, what were you really trying to accomplish with this? I want someone in the Biden administration to wake up every morning and worry about where the dedicated funding is going to come from, who the lead agency is going to be, what the policy framework is going to be in the face of accelerating climate change, especially along the coast. That's my goal here. That would be the redemption moment for this book, is to have a change in federal policy. I know some of them are listening, so <laughs> pick up this book. All right. I want to pivot just as, as we kind of wrap up this conversation too, but a little bit about your work. Your background is, is fascinating, but you're getting into the adaptation space in a big way. And I think that your book is a, a big statement of where you're going. I want to talk a little bit too, is you'd listened to my recent episode with Madison Condon and you want to talk a little bit about climate modeling. What stood out for you in that? I thought Madison Condon was terrific. And the fact that she is in conversation with all these climate scientists who are just throwing up their hands <laughs> at the quality of supposedly fine-grained recommendations being made by third-party consultants based on inadequate data from what the client scientists can tell, that was terrific. She's saying we need an agreed-on basis for the decisions that we make about sea level rise. Otherwise, we're making policy based on sand. And she doesn't believe that federal authorities, including Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, are adequately aware of that. So that was just a terrific episode. I also thought that Mark Nevitt did a great nonpartisan problem-solving job talking about the legal frameworks that are completely out of step with the public leadership that will be needed to move us through this phase change that's up ahead. So two law professors, both coming from different cross-disciplinary backgrounds, grappling with what they see and both noticing, as I do, that there's enormous student interest in these topics that we need to be opening the doors of law schools to people from public health and business school and public policy school and urban planning and computer scientists and everybody else that's interested in this gigantic phase change and, you know, getting the best minds to think about these planning problems. That is the role of universities today. And we're all seeing it and we're all working across boundaries. Oh, you law professors all stick together. Those are your favorites. I get it. <laughs> you know, I, I guess I have done a, quite a few in the last three to four months. And so, but they're always fun conversations because you guys are there to probe these ideas in really deep ways. So I enjoy talking to law professors. And it was interesting too about the modeling. And I think about in relation to Charleston, I, you know, I think they're using NOAA data from 2070. I don't know. I didn't, I don't know if you dug around, but like, are they using some of these climate analytic groups? And if they are, okay, they're taking a responsible action, but the whole notion of Madison's episode is that, well, what if there's a bad projection on the low end or on the high end? And does that impact their adaptation planning? And are they at fault for that, for trying to do the responsible thing? And again, that I think that was Madison's point with that episode is just, oh boy, are we going to hold against Charleston because they went with the, what you thought was a legit analytics firm? To Charleston's credit, they are using NOAA and IPCC data to the best of their abilities. They really are. The problem is that there are high risk events, extremes that occur even with linear rises in sea level rise. So put another way, sea level rise may be inching up. NOAA is saying that only through 2050 does it have high confidence in its predictions. But there are low confidence, but extremely risky scenarios that they cannot rule out. The point of many climate scientists, when you're planning for human life, 
and for human well-being, you have to take those extremes into account. You have to worry about things that are unlikely. You know, why would you get on an elevator if you thought it was likely to, you know, be safe nine out of 10 times? Probably not. <laughs> we actually need to be planning for what's, you know, the thick tales of extremes that are coming at us in the next few decades. Again, don't want to single out Charleston for particularly bad planning, but in looking at the wall plan, they really did seize on 2050 and did not talk about years after that. Yeah. And I certainly don't want to give the impression that knocking on Charleston, as I mentioned, wow, compared to so many other communities, they are light years ahead. But this is a nice exercise of like, okay, now let's see what you're doing here because the expectations are only going to rise in the years ahead. Okay. What can you improve upon? Mm -hmm. Are you doing maladaptation or adaptation? And so these are the conversations I think we have to have. That's right. I mean, I didn't want to get back to Charleston, but I, I was curious about you. You're doing this pivot to adaptation and I'm curious about that process. How does that manifest itself with, it says you teach adaptation with your law students and stuff. What does that look like? I'm offering a course called The Law of Climate Adaptation. Many of the issues that Mark was talking about in his podcast, what should be the scope of federal or state power to rezone, to help people move, all of that. There are a lot of legal questions that come up and really the structures don't fit. I also do a a big class for first-year law students on public leadership and bring in lots of people to inspire them. I want more and more Harvard law students to go into the public sector. Often they are kind of funneled because of debt and other concerns into working for the private sector, particularly in the beginning of their careers. And at least opening to their minds in the first year, the idea that their careers should include at some point service in the public sector is also part of my mission at the law school. I have been teaching a lot of courses about technology policy, and I am pivoting away from that at this point. And so you're going to continue just to delve deeper into the adaptation space. That's the goal. You know, it's never ending. It touches on everything. And I think it's a strength of mine that I have always been interested in how things work. I was very interested in how fiber optic technology work. I wrote a whole book called Fiber about it. And understanding the science behind sea level rise, understanding its effects on human lives, and then most importantly, thinking hard about the line between what's appropriate for the private sector to do and what's appropriate for the public sector to do. That's the through line in my career. And I've come to believe over the years that infrastructure, public works, that really is for the public sector and planning for the future of where cities are, that's really for the public sector. And then we provide a platform for the private sector to carry out its dreams on top of those policies. But to let the private sector drive the entire conversation as they are doing now in the adaptation space seems to me inappropriate and ultimately short-sighted. Now, do any of your students listen to the podcast? Oh, yeah. I assign podcast elements to the students. Yeah. Oh, boy. Harvard class assigning America dabs. Oh, I'm Susan, mm-hmm. I can't tell you that. be sharing that with my wife tonight. I'm like, oh, excellent. So, <laughs> listen, you got to take these little victories when you can. So that's fabulous. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it made the final cut because I know you, I got a galley from you, but I didn't know in advance when you shared it with me, but there was a reference in your bibliography, one of the episodes, I think the Managed Retreat episodes. Did that, did that make the final cut? 
Absolutely. That's in there. Ciders and Jesse Keenan, I met at Harvard and I listen hard to them when they appear on your podcast. Okay. Well, that's great. I, I, I had the PDF. I wasn't like, oh, I wonder if I made the final cut. And I, so folks listening <laughs> out there, I didn't invite Susan on because I saw it there. I saw that after we had agreed to do this. So I don't want <laughs> there any conflict of interest there. Susan, you know what's coming here. My last question, if you could recommend anyone to come on the podcast, who would it be? I don't think you've had Jeff Peterson on. Jeff oh. Peterson from the Coastal Flood Resilience Project. He is just terrific, and he's been very helpful to me. He's ex-EPA and really working on sketching out the kinds of national policies that are needed for the strategic relocation conversation to advance. So I hope you can have Jeff on. Well, look him up. I know I, I haven't had him on, and I'm just not familiar with his work, so that'd be very interesting. Susan, this was a pleasure. I love having these conversations and congratulations on the book. Just a big accomplishment. And I think hopefully driving a lot of adaptation conversations there at the local level. And thanks for coming on the podcast. It's an honor to be here, Doug. Thanks for everything you do. And you're right to ask people to sponsor you. (laughs) This is a terrific podcast. Oh, well, thank you for that little plug at the end. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Susan for coming on the podcast. It was a fascinating conversation and perfectly encapsulates the challenges we face doing community-wide adaptation planning. Although the conversation might have sounded critical, I definitely applaud Charleston for all the adaptation work they are doing. For a city in the South, they are definitely leaders. Some of the topics Susan covers are controversial subjects race and climate change. Definitely hot button issues. I encourage you to learn more about what Charleston is doing by visiting their website and definitely getting more of their perspective on the work they're doing. I think a lot of cities will be watching Charleston and learning how they try and thread this adaptation needle through equitable planning practices. I obviously think the much bigger issue for these coastal cities is that they are still encouraging growth in their regions. Yes, I'm looking right at you, South Florida. There's still so much uncertainty on what climate change will mean for existing populations in these at-risk areas, even with significant adaptation planning and funding. Encouraging people to come into these regions with such climate uncertainty is incredibly irresponsible. Decoupling economic growth with population growth should be a major climate adaptation area of research. All right, guys, if that's your area of expertise, get on it. Thanks again to Susan for coming on the podcast. Okay, so I don't do this every episode, but it's something you'll hear more from me about in the coming months. As many of you may not be familiar with the behind-the-scenes efforts required to produce and sustain America Adapts, I'm making a heartfelt pitch for your financial support. America Adapts is a small nonprofit organization centered around the podcast. And while I do receive sponsorships for specific episodes, I also rely on individual donations. In the past, I haven't emphasized this avenue of support, but now I'm revisiting it because I truly need your help. Some generous donors have been contributing $10 per month, which is tax deductible since we are designated as a 501c3 organization through the Social Good Fund. I want to thank some of my recent donors. I'm blown away by your generosity. Thank you. I deeply appreciate those donors, but I need more of you to contribute. You may have heard similar requests on other podcasts that depend on listener support. I'm not the best at making these pitches, but after doing this for a while, I know that many of you gain tremendous value from the podcast. People have shared how they binged on episodes to grasp the essentials of climate adaptation. So in addition to the professional value you receive, please consider donating to help raise awareness about adaptation. We're all a passionate 
We are all passionate about this issue, and I created the podcast precisely because I wanted to communicate the importance of this field. The podcast reaches influential individuals worldwide, and by supporting it, you become part of that valuable contribution. If we can spend money on $5 lattes without hesitation, please think about making a recurring donation of a similar amount to support America Dapps. The reality is that I won't be able to continue publishing the podcast without sponsorships and direct support from listeners like you. Some might assume I have hidden funders, but that's not the case. While I have explored foundation support, those efforts haven't been successful. Therefore, I rely on episode sponsorships and support from individual donors. Let me reiterate that I genuinely dislike making these appeals, and I'm not particularly skilled at it. However, enough you have expressed how much value you derive from the podcast. You've changed careers and approached adaptation differently because of the remarkable experts featured on the show over the years. There is simply no other platform where thousands of adaptation professionals can gather and learn like they do on American Apps. This podcast is my passion, just as adaptation is. And together, let's keep making a difference. We all know that climate adaptation will become increasingly important in the years to come, and the stories we can tell are limitless. So I invite you to join our community of changemakers and help shape the future of climate adaptation by supporting the podcast and sharing these stories. Okay, that's my pitch. If you're interested in donating, you can find the link in my show notes or visit americadaps.org. Thank you. Finally, as the host of America Daps, I'm always eager to connect with my listeners and hear feedback on the show. Whether you want to share your thoughts or suggest to guests you'd like to hear from, I'm open to it all. Your input not only helps me improve the show, but can also lead to exciting new opportunities. It's critical to know who's out there and who's listening and what you're doing. It's very valuable. I can be reached at americadaps at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.